be reading Romans 15, verses 14 through 21. I myself am satisfied about you, my brethren, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has wrought through me to win obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and as far around as Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, thus making it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they shall see who have never been told of him, and they shall understand who have never heard of him. Sanctification is a very irrelevant word in our uh, society, but the reality behind it is not. It's like a hundred technical terms in medicine. You may not have any idea what they mean, but your life may hang on what they stand for. Sanctification comes from two Latin words, sanctus, holy, and ficare, to make. So when you put the two together and you get sanctificare, it means to make holy. And so we use it for the process by which God is making us holy. Of course, the word holy doesn't fare any better. You use the word holy in your place of work and people look at you funny because that word just isn't used. We've just about ruined it with holy mackerel and holy cow and holy buckets and you name it. We've wrecked a lot of good biblical words by throwing them on the trash heap of American slang. And I would insert a parenthesis here to say that the best argument for not using words like damn and hell and holy and Jesus Christ is not because they're bad words. They're good words. They're too good to demean and deflate by throwing them on the heap of slang. Keep damn for what it means. Keep hell for what it means. Keep Jesus Christ for what it means. So I don't think there's any point in trying to invent new words for this grand old reality of sanctification because as soon as you got a new word started, somebody would use it for a bang thumb and it wouldn't be any good anymore. Instead, let's just dig in to the apostle's mind and find out that great reality that's there and use it for our lives, whether you call it by the word sanctification or not. You might never want to use the word insulin, but if you're a diabetic, you care about what it is. You might have never heard of the word hyperopia, but if you've got it, you can't read without glasses. And so it matters that you take care of the reality. As irrelevant as the word is, the reality is crucial, it's contemporary, it's relevant. Suppose that you have been lying on your tax returns for years because you've had honorarium 
income maybe or something that Uncle Sam never would know about. And you just don't tell anybody. And Jesus Christ meets you. You bow before Him and acknowledge Him as Lord and start telling the truth on your tax returns. That is sanctification. And that's relevant. Or suppose you're always on your husband's back. And God's Word pricks your conscience and you start preaching less and showing more respect. That's sanctification. And that's relevant. Or suppose you're sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and Jesus Christ meets you and gives you the courage to move out. That's sanctification. And that's relevant. So don't get hung up on the word. And how out of date it might sound in 20th century America. The reality is big. And it's important. There are a lot of images. Living images around in the world of sanctification today. That are more real, more authentic. Than all the people put together who say sanctification is passe. Malcolm Muggridge has described Mother Teresa in a recent interview like this. I think a person like her comes into the world not by chance and radiates the Christian faith at its most simple, most pure, most effective level. She takes any baby that is given to her and looks after it. She brings in dying people from the streets who might live for only a quarter of an hour and when they leave this life with a loving Christian face beside them instead of one of rejection, she would say that it is well worth it. She is diametrically opposed to the spirit of the age. Abortion is a horror to her and all the attitude of mind associated with it. When a young woman living comfortably and securely in middle-class Western society leaves for Calcutta in obedience to Jesus, that is sanctification and it's relevant. It's beautiful. It's powerful. So don't let the Word stop you from considering the importance of this subject. So we want to consider it with three questions. One, what is it from the text that Steve read? Two, how can we get sanctified if it's all that great? And three, why is it so important? Why make such a fuss out of it? Number one, what is it? Let's start at verse 15 of Romans 15 and read a couple of verses. Paul says at the end of verse 15, we'll pick it up in the middle, grace has been given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now focus with me on just one thing for a moment. The goal of Paul's missionary labor is sanctification. See that? He pictures himself as a priest. His ministry as a priest is to preach the gospel and the offerings that he makes to God as a priest are Gentiles. But not just any Gentiles. Gentiles who are acceptable, namely 
sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So his goal in his priestly ministry is to make sanctified people out of unbelievers. He's not content just to get converts. He wants to make people holy or sanctified. Now, as soon as you see that that is the goal of Paul's missionary labor, we can see more clearly what the meaning of it is because in verse 18, he says what his goal is, only he uses different words, which will unpack for us the meaning of sanctification. Let's read verse 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has wrought through me to win obedience from the Gentiles. Now, what's the aim of Paul's missionary labor here? Or more precisely, what's the aim of Christ working through Paul's missionary labor here? Answer, to win obedience from the Gentiles. So here's what I conclude by putting those two verses together. In verse 16, his goal is sanctified people. And in verse 18, Christ's goal through him is obedient people. And therefore, I conclude very simply, sanctification is obedience to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you remember, when he gave the commission and stated the aim of missionary work, he said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. So Jesus' goal in the Great Commission, which Paul was fulfilling, is obedience to his words. So sanctification is happening wherever the words of Jesus are being obeyed. There's a confirmation of this in Romans 6, if you want to look at it with me. In Romans 6, verses 17 and 19, I think this text shows that we're on to something in Paul. We've, we've dug into the apostle's mind and we found a connection that he really does think. And that's what I'm after, is always to think the apostles' thoughts after them. He says in verse 17, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Then drop down to verse 19, and the second half says, For just as you once yielded your members to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now yield your members to righteousness for sanctification. So if you put verse 17 and verse 19 together, you get the same connection that you got in Romans 15. Namely, uh, obedience to Jesus' teaching in verse 17 is virtually the same as sanctification in verse 19. So the process of sanctification is the process of more consistently and more fervently obeying Jesus Christ. Now, one of our goals at Bethlehem is to become a people with a wartime mentality and a wartime lifestyle. A people who see the warmth and the beauty of spring like we had yesterday, but don't forget that vast populations of this world and vast terrains of the human heart are ice-bound in unbelief. We want to be a people with a wartime mentality that is a people that in every season recognize that Satan is fighting with his forces to resist the liberation of the gospel 
and to expand his deadly kingdom. He does not take any time off in the summer or in the spring. And God helping us, we want to be a people who do not have a peacetime mentality in the summer. It's easy to have a wartime mentality in Minnesota in the winter. Everybody's fighting. Stay alive. But daffodils and tulip blossoms, aspen leaves, carpets of grass, we will not be deceived into thinking that the millennium has come because it hasn't. The war rages right on through the summer. Every new and fresh and beautiful leaf is an offer of amnesty from a loving God to a rebellious world. And every blue sky day and every cumulus cloud is a call of repentance before the final storm gathers. It is a war time in the summer, even in the midst of the beauty that God showers upon this world. Every softball game, every fishing trip, every hour in the garden, every day at the lake is a field of conflict. And there are a hundred ways that you can win the victory over evil in the power of Christ at work and play this summer if you maintain a wartime mentality. And what Paul has done for us here in Romans 15 is taken this old word sanctification and made a wartime word out of it by defining it as obedience to the commander in chief. Sanctification is obeying the commander-in-chief. A sanctified person is a person with unquestioned allegiance to Jesus Christ the King. A sanctified person is a person with unswerving commitment to the cause of Christ. A sanctified person is a person with uncompromising loyalty to the comrades in arms. So... Whenever you think of sanctification, think of a wartime mission and a wartime strategy because it was the goal of Paul's mission and it was the radical obedience that enabled him to carry the gospel from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, that northernmost part of Greece, just before you get to Rome. But how can you become that way? That's question number two. How can we get sanctified being the people we are? Let's go back now to verse 15 again. Of Romans 15. Notice the sequence of events here that start with grace. The grace of God, the highest fountain of all sanctification, is poured out into Paul's life. It makes him a minister of Christ. As a minister of Christ, he undertakes the service of the gospel and begins to preach. And his goal in his preaching is sanctified people. Let's try a triangle. We've got a triangle here like this. With a base here in front of me, two points here, and one up here. This peak of the triangle is the grace of God. It's the fountain from which everything flows. It says in verse 15 that grace was given to Paul. So Paul is at the bottom corner of the triangle over here. He's a Pharisee. He's persecuting the church. Here comes the grace of God on the Damascus Road, knocks him off his donkey, and he revolutionizes his life. Okay? As a result, he starts moving along the base of the triangle here, which is the ministry of the gospel. He's a missionary now. And by the grace of God changing his life, he has a message of good news to proclaim. Believe in Jesus Christ. You can be forgiven of all your sins and have eternal life. 
He starts preaching that. And here is a Gentile unbeliever at this point of the triangle over here. And the message comes. And it says that the, the goal is to sanctify this person. But the text does not say that the gospel will do it. What will do it? It says they are sanctified by what? The Holy Spirit. And that's this side of the triangle. So you got to, in order to finish the triangle, from the grace of God flowing down into this unbeliever's heart, there's got to be some mighty work to open that person's heart to receive the gospel. Like Lydia, it says, the Lord opened her heart to receive the gospel. So along the base of the triangle comes the ministry of the gospel because of the grace of God poured out here. And preparing a person for the gospel is the grace of God and the Holy Spirit working to open the heart here. So sanctification happens when the Holy Spirit and the Word of God unite powerfully in the heart of a person to bring them to God and to bring them to obedience. Now, let's put that in the context of verse 18. Let's read verse 18 and see how Paul describes the base of this triangle. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has wrought through me to win obedience from the Gentiles. Now, what that verse is written to show is that when you look at this triangle, you ought not to say, oh, I see, sanctification is partly owing to God's work and partly owing to man's work. And when man's work and God's work unite, you get conversion and sanctification. This verse is written to say, don't say that. Paul says, describing his ministry on the horizontal here, I will not speak of anything except what Christ has worked through me to win obedience from the Gentiles. This is not the only work of Christ. This is not the only work of Christ. This too is the work of Christ. From Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. Romans 11.36 Paul does not want to take any credit for the fruitfulness of his ministry. It is all of God or all of grace. Grace is the fountain pouring it out on Paul. Grace is the fountain pouring out the Holy Spirit here. And it's grace that is giving him a message, giving him a motive, and giving him strength and fruitfulness to get this work done. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, I worked harder than all those other apostles. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of Christ which was with me. Therefore, the first step in answer to the question, how do you get sanctified, is really the last step as well. Namely, humble yourselves and yield to the sovereign grace of God. And when you do that, what you find happening is that you open yourself to the Holy Spirit and His work and you open yourself horizontally to receive the Word whether you're reading it or hearing it preached and the Word and the Spirit work mightily to bring you on in obedience. But it all starts 
with a submissive spirit to the sovereign grace of God as it's poured out in the spirit and worked in the gospel. So whatever your age, whatever your vocation, or whatever your intelligence, make it your aim to study the word of God and to pray for the power of the spirit. We are weak in obedience precisely to the extent that we are weak in the word. And now finally, why is it so important? Somebody might say, why should I be so concerned about this? Sanctification is for super saints, not for me. I'm no stormtrooper. I'm a behind-the-lines saint. I'm content with last week's sermon. I like being sealed, but sanctification, well, let's leave that for heaven. You know the main problem with saying that? People who leave sanctification for heaven won't get there. Romans 15, 16, verse 16 in our text says that Paul's aim in preaching the gospel is to present Gentiles to God as an acceptable offering. That is, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't it be right to infer from that verse that without the sanctifying work of the Spirit, we are unacceptable to God? That's what I infer from that verse. He is laboring to present Gentiles acceptable to God, sanctified by the Spirit. Those aren't two separate things. If you're not sanctified, you're not acceptable. Hebrews 12:14 says pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 5:9 says eternal salvation belongs to those who obey Christ using the word obey instead of sanctify not to people who disregard his teachings and who cover their worldliness with a veneer of religious church attendance. So, the first and most obvious answer to why it's important to pursue sanctification is because you will be rejected by God at the judgment day if you don't have it. And that's important. The point of last week's message was God wants you to enjoy your security in his love forever. He wants Christians to be absolutely assured of his powerful grip on their lives. Is it a contradiction to say, God sealed you forever the day you believed, and to say, on the other hand, you will not see the Lord unless you are sanctified. Is that a contradiction? Yes, it is. If you try to be a Calvinist in respect to eternal security and an Arminian in respect to sanctification. Let me translate that jargon into understandable language here. 
If you give God the right to keep you secure sovereignly by His power, like a good Calvinist does, but you preserve the work of sanctification for yourself, you can't make sense out of the Scripture. It will contradict itself. Because if you keep it for yourself, it is uncertain. And therefore, there's no way to make sense out of the command in view of eternal security. The certainty of our security and the necessity of our sanctification only makes sense if God is sanctifier and sealer. If you insist on being the sanctifier, you will never be able to make sense out of your security when you hear Hebrews 12:14, you cannot see God without sanctification because you'll never be sure that you'll make it. If God says, I love you and I have sealed you unto the day of redemption, you are mine forever. And then says to you in the next breath, pursue sanctification without which you will not ever see me. Does that not clearly imply that with the security of the sealing comes the certainty of the sanctification, and must it not then be God's work? Picture yourself as a car. Let's try an illustration, see if we can make sense out of this with a picture. You're on the junk heap of the universe as an unbeliever, and God in His grace comes along and takes you off the junk heap of the universe and retools you and fix you up, sets you on the route of sanctification, gives you the destination of glory. And then there's two ways you can think about your ceiling. One way would be to say that God puts a sticker on the back of your front door that says, uh, sealed, guaranteed to get to heaven on the road of sanctification, and if you don't, we'll come out and haul you in. So you got a sticker and you start driving. And if you wind up in the swamp, it doesn't make any difference. He come out and haul you in. The other way to view the sealing of the Holy Spirit is that he takes you off the junk heap, retools you, and don't put any sticker on your car. He gets in, takes the wheel, and drives you to heaven. That's Calvinism, and that's biblical. He knows the roads. He's an expert mechanic. He doesn't always take the route you expect. He has some things to teach you around the swampy edges of life. God seals us for eternity when we truly believe. He puts His Spirit within us. And when He does, He guarantees not only that we will get to glory, but that we will get there on the road of sanctification, or not at all. Therefore, the command to pursue sanctification is not intended to threaten your security in God. It's intended to threaten your security in everything but God. So let's sum up. Sanctification is obedience to Jesus Christ. 
Not perfection, but a growing consistency and fervor of obedience to the Lord, our Commander-in-Chief. Second, the way to attain that is by the grace of God. We open ourselves to the power of His Spirit. We open ourselves horizontally to the effect and truth of His Word. We pray, we pursue, we study, we work, for it is God who is at work in us to will and to do His good pleasure. And third, the reason we put such a high premium on the pursuit of sanctification is because without it we will not see the Lord. Not only will we not see the Lord in the future, but the highest pleasures that this life has to offer will be denied us. And you know what those are? The highest pleasures of this life are experiencing the power of Almighty God overcoming our desires to take the wheel and wreck the car. Experiencing the power of God conquering sin in our lives and rooting it out and keeping us on the narrow way. That is such a thrilling experience. To feel Him calling us away from earthly loves, giving us a new passion for boldness and for the gospel and for compassion for people. When you start experiencing the power of God like that, it makes you know that to see Him in the age to come is going to be the best thing in the world. And so, my prayer for us this morning is that we might know obedience, expose ourselves to grace, and make it to glory.